week in our study of uh, the book of Romans. And uh, we're coming this morning to Romans chapter 2. We'll look at the first uh, half or so of it, the first 16 verses. And um, this has been, um, this is by any account uh, a, a difficult passage of scripture to really uh, understand. At least it takes very careful uh, reflection. I've had that experience this week. Even uh, if you had asked me on Wednesday morning, in fact, as we were discussing this text in staff meeting, uh, what some of my conclusions were about this text, some of those conclusions have changed since then. Uh, it's been, um, it's an adventure. It really is an adventure to sit under the Word of God and be shaped by it, uh, be gripped by it, and then to speak what it says. And uh, that's not always necessarily what we, what we initially think. And so um, I trust that many of us will have that experience as we, uh, this morning again, sit under uh, God's Word, uh, particularly the second chapter of Romans. Before we uh, read this text, I want to set, uh, set it up for, for us this way. I was thinking this week about uh, an experience we had as a family last year, last July 4th, actually it was July 3rd, uh, because uh, we were still at the time living in, uh, in Florida and had taken our family downtown for what they called uh, the annual Red, White, and Kaboom. And uh, vendors are on the street, and um, there, there's food and snacks and games for children. And you spend the afternoon out there um, just oppressively hot, um, having a good time. And you keep telling your kids that you're having a good time. <laughs> and, of course, the finale of the evening is the fireworks display, which, which uh, is set off over one of the lakes uh, in downtown Lakeland. And everybody gathers around, uh, around downtown and, and watches this fireworks display and one of the one of the the features of that day for us was as the afternoon wore on towards dinner time and as dinner time wore on into the evening and as we still waited for the sun to set our children especially the younger children uh, would would repeatedly ask me when are the fireworks going to start and I would tell them well we have to wait till it's dark well why do we have to wait till it's dark when's it going to be dark and there really wasn't an appreciation in their minds as to the connection between fireworks and darkness. And so as simply as I could think to explain it, I, I said uh, to one of our younger daughters, well, if the skies aren't totally dark, then we really won't be able to see how bright the colors of the fireworks are. But by waiting until the sun is down and, and, and the sky is dark, then when you see the fireworks display against the backdrop of the night sky, that's what makes it look so impressive. And I tell you that story because that's very similar. I think that's a very helpful way to think about what the Apostle Paul is doing in the first two and a half chapters of Romans. He, he's begun the letter by talking about the gospel of God, which is not good advice about how to live our lives, but good news that there is, in place of our own unrighteousness, a righteousness from God that is revealed from faith for faith. That is, it's only by faith, not by your striving, as we've just confessed using the catechism. And Paul is going to return to that statement in chapter 3, verse 21. But you see what Paul understands about you and about me and about all of humanity is that we won't be able to hear the good news unless we've heard the bad, that we won't appreciate how bright 
the glory of the grace of God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ until we see it clearly against the backdrop of the blackness of the sky of our sin and need. And so from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, like a prosecuting attorney, is building a case against all of humanity. And what we read in chapter 3, verse 9, is that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We read again in chapter 3, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, and here's his charge, or here's his goal, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is Paul's aim from Romans 1.18 through 3.20 to show you, to show all of the world that apart from the grace of God and the gospel of God, we have no hope, but that it's the gospel of God that gives hope to those who are hopeless, who see their brokenness, their misery, their sin, their need. Now in chapter 1, what we've been seeing as we've looked for several weeks at verses 18 to 32, Paul's been showing how the pagan world, the Gentile world at the time, had completely rejected uh, God and had been plunged into immorality and greed and, and was under the wrath of God. And this critique, remember that Paul's writing to a church that was made up both of Jew and Gentile. And this critique of the Gentiles in chapter 1 would have been very easy for a Jew at this time to accept. To hear that condemnation of the Gentile world and think, well, of course God would judge the Gentiles. They're, they're immoral. They're pagan. They're, they're, not, they're the nations. They're excluded. They're not part of God's chosen people. And it would have been easy to hear as if God excluded them just because they're Gentiles. And conversely, they would have thought, of course, we're included because we're Jews. Well, this is exactly how many religious people in our own day would hear a, verse like, a text like Romans 1. Uh, they would hear Paul's description of God's wrath coming on those awful pagans out there, those immoral people over there. But many religious people would be totally shocked if they were to be told that God was against them, that God's wrath was coming on them, against the moral, against the religious. In other words, Paul is addressing here in chapter 2, not the pagan Gentile, but the unbelieving Jew who, who is quick to condemn the other person, but not quick to see his own sin. Who's quick to dismiss and exclude others for their immorality but he's quick to include himself because of his morality and his religion. Paul's been saying that everyone by nature runs from God and tries to avoid him. That's what he's been saying in the first chapter. You see, we're all either self-worshippers or we're God-worshippers. In fact, by nature, we're all self-worshippers. We exalt ourselves, though we were made to worship God. And Paul's saying, look... This can happen in a variety of ways. Pagan people who, who are outside of the covenant community, outside the church, if we put it in our context, these pagans out there, they might run from God and exalt themselves with sex and wealth and power and things like this. But now he turns his focus to religious people, perhaps people inside the church, and says, you know what? Religious people exalt themselves and worship themselves, and they just use morality and religion to do it. But everybody, and this is what Paul's driving, about it, driving at, everyone before God is guilty of self-exaltation. And what Paul is saying here is that God's wrath is coming on those who exalt themselves. Now, here's what you've got to understand. 
before we read this passage, what you must understand is that if you don't feel like a hopeless sinner, then you don't understand the gospel. If you don't feel like God would be just to cast you off because of the sinfulness of your heart and your life, then you're blind to reality. And if this is how you're thinking, then even when the gospel is preached, it it won't find its way into your heart. It won't lift you up. It won't find soil to, to grow in because you, at bottom, don't think you need righteousness from God. You think that you have enough on your own. It's easy to say, as we did in our prayer of confession this morning, we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Or we might say with the Apostle Paul, if we're really ambitious from 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief, I am the foremost. The question before us from this passage is, do we, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you actually see yourself as a sinner in need of grace? Or is that a theory? Or perhaps you reject it altogether. The answer to that question is directly tied to how you will respond to Jesus Christ and to his gospel. For some of you, I fear that this is probably sitting on the surface of your hearts, but it's not penetrating. But Paul is is gripped by the conviction that until we get this, we can never appreciate the glorious good news of the gospel of Christ. So the question is, what do we need to understand if we're going to be able to hear the gospel as good news? So let's give our attention now to uh, the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we do want to sit under your word. That is uh, to be humble. And so we pray that uh, by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would open our, our minds to understand, that you would open our hearts to receive, and that you would draw us to your Son, that we would behold our need, that we would behold his provision, and that we would rest completely on him. God, use your word in every way that you see fit to, to do so in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question again is, what do we need to understand if we're going to understand and appreciate that the gospel truly is good news? And what Paul is showing us is that we need to understand some things about the judgment of God, in particular that it is a righteous judgment if we're going to understand the gospel. And what he shows us first, and we see this in the first four verses of this text, is that on the judgment day which is coming, God will turn the tables on those who self-righteously condemn other people. That's one thing we need to understand according to this text about the judgment of God. God will turn the tables on those who self-righteously judge other people. Notice in the text that in writing to the Jews and addressing these religious people, Paul begins with a very specific charge. Do you see what his charge is? It's hypocrisy. He begins with a very specific charge. He, he says to them in verse 1, you're all judging people for doing the very same things that you yourselves are guilty of doing. That's hypocrisy. That's the charge that Paul lays against these religious people. Now, interesting. Isn't this one of the most common charges that's leveled against the church and against Christians today? Many people will say that their primary objection to Christianity is what? Some of us. Hypocrisy in the church. And the Bible gives a very interesting answer to that. It doesn't evade it. In fact, God says he hates it too. But in fact, it's not an objection to Christianity because uh, that sort of hypocrisy is a denial of biblical Christianity. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So notice what he says. He says, some of you religious people have been very quick to condemn the sins of pagans but you've been very light on yourselves. You've been very quick to spot the sins of others, and you've turned a blind eye, a blind eye to your own sins, and you've let yourselves off the hook. And so Paul lays this charge of hypocrisy against them, passing judgment, condemning others. And then he, he says there are consequences for that. In verse 2, you see, he says, we know that the judgment of God, rightly or according to truth, falls on those who do such things. How so? What is, what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying very simply this. He's saying that at the end, on the day of judgment, God will judge these people that Paul is addressing. God will judge them according to the standard of their own words. Paul, in other words, Paul wants these religious people, these moralizing, uh, self-righteous condemners of others, he wants them to understand that they don't even live up to their own standards. You see that again in verse 1. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
He's saying not only do you not live up to God's standards, you don't even live up to your own. And so I'll judge you according to your own standards and you stand condemned by them. Think of it this way. What if you were, Paul talks about homosexuality in chapter 1. What if you were to, within your own heart, judge or condemn a person for breaking the seventh commandment by engaging in homosexual activity, but fail to see that you've broken the same commandment by lusting after someone in your heart? Or what if you condemn someone for uh, what you perceive to be on their part a very unjust life? And yet you remain blind to your own materialism, your own greed. It's the same problem, isn't it? You've not lived up even to your own standard. And so in the act of condemning the other person, you condemn yourself. What Paul says here is that the standards that, that are used to judge others will be the standards with which you will be judged. This is how he's speaking to the Jews. That's how he's speaking to religious people, to church people, to moral people. But your own mouth and your own judgments of others will be the thing that condemns you, Paul says. But we need to ask a question. Because certainly we find in the scriptures that Jesus uh, challenges and and calls certain attitudes and behaviors sinful. Paul does the same thing. In fact, in places like Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, the church is called to evaluate and even correct people. So in some sense, making judgments is not always wrong. What, What then is Paul condemning? I think it will help us to think of two things. First of all, he seems to be addressing a particular attitude toward other people. Think of it this way. It would have been easy for the moral, religious Jew to think, to hell with the Gentiles. It would be very easy for some religious, moral church member to think, you know what, who needs those dirty sinners anyway? We may not use those words, but we may have in our hearts a very dismissive, cold, calloused attitude towards those who are lost. This is part of what Paul is saying God hates. But there's more to that because he also has in view a certain attitude about ourselves. An attitude that thinks that others deserve God's judgment, but that we do not. And to people who are living this way, and perhaps some of you have slid into this yourselves, perhaps many of us need to repent of this. Because to people who are living this way, God says two things. Notice in verse 3, first of all, he says, Do you who judge others but, but do not judge yourselves, do you think you will stand on the day of judgment when you've done the same things you condemn in others? Very hard question, is it not? And so God is telling them to inspect themselves as closely as they're inspecting other people. And this is is God's word to us. And then second, in verses 4 and 5, God says to them, I have been kind to you. Think of it this way. Paul, writing to the Jewish community who were unbelieving. These were not Jews who had been converted and had had trusted in Christ as the Messiah, but those who still had rejected Christ. And, And yet Paul says, oh, don't you see that the Lord has been patient with you? He's not judged and condemned you, but he's given you time to repent and to trust in the Savior. And yet instead of becoming soft and humble, you've become hard and impenitent. And so God says, since you've presumed upon my kindness and patience... 
I will judge you more severely. And we need to think carefully about this because here's the principle. The more God gives us truth, both in the world that he's made around us and in his word that he's given to us, the more God gives us truth and the more God gives us good gifts, the greater our responsibility and the more serious our judgment will be if we don't repent. And that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about this idea of storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, which means the longer we get God's blessings without repenting, the greater our final punishment will be. This is a very hard teaching. But very important that we understand. Maybe some of you have been, are here this morning and, and you've been busy accusing other Christians of hypocrisy. Or maybe some of you have been busy accusing others of various sins and you've grown blind to your own. Well, God is saying to you from, the, from his word that he wants you to see how much you need to be cleansed and saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's been so kind in withholding judgment. He's been so patient and generous toward you. And it's intended, Paul says, to move you toward repentance, not to make you complacent and self-reliant and hard, but to soften you and lead you to repentance. And so, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so Paul is showing us that if we're going to understand how good the good news is, we need to understand how dangerous it is to fall into this condemning, self-righteous attitude because God will judge those who do so. God will turn the tables. But then secondly, Paul, as he continues in this line of thought, shows us that at the last day, God will not only deal with the religious person, but he will judge everyone impartially according to who we really are, not according to who we've pretended to be. And you see that in verses 5 through the end of the passage, through 16. Let me be really clear. This teaching, not salvation by works, but judgment according to works, is pervasive in the Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. John 5, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, So we make it our aim to please the Lord, for we must all appear. And he's writing to believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now here's the question that everyone has to ask if they're going to take this text of Scripture seriously. Does this contradict what Paul has said about salvation by grace, a salvation that comes apart from works, from this righteousness of God that he gives to us freely. Well, I think we have to give Paul some credit for being intelligent. He's just spoken in chapter 1, and he'll say again in a few verses in chapter 3, that salvation is, is only found in the righteousness of God that comes by faith. 
So there's no contradiction here. We just need to listen and, and think and use our minds to understand what he's saying. And what we see when we do that is that Paul is not talking about works as the basis for salvation. But he's talking about works as evidence on the day of judgment. One illustration that's been offered is this. The apples on a tree prove life, but they're not the source of life. If you see apples growing in a healthy way on a tree, it shows you that the tree is alive. But the apples are there because the tree is rooted in fertile, life-giving soil. In the same way, faith in Jesus Christ is all that provides life. Faith alone in Christ alone provides life. But as, our confession, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says so well, good works flow from faith as evidences of a true and lively faith. What Paul is getting at here, I think, in these verses, what he's driving us to see is that our attitudes and actions in this life reveal who we really are at the core. The way we think about life, the way we live, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves at every moment reflects who we really are at our core. And Paul is saying on the day of judgment, there will be no special privilege for those who are, uh, who are Jew against those who are Gentile. There will be no special privilege for the church member versus the outsider who's come to faith in Christ. But all are on the same footing in God's presence And on that day, God will render a judgment about each of us that will be consistent with who we really are, not with who we've pretended to be. Again, this is the point that Paul is making in verses 7 through 10. You notice what he says is, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What is Paul saying? He's saying that in this, in this world, there are glory seekers and there are self-seekers. If you're seeking after glory, why is that? If you're seeking after glory, it's because you've been brought into the kingdom of glory by faith in Jesus Christ. You've been made new. You've been united to Christ. And now you're bearing fruit, which shows up as you seek His glory. But if you're seeking after self, if the pattern of your life is self-absorption and condemning of others and these sorts of things, it, it points to the fact that you remain in darkness, that you're opposed to God, and that your inheritance, as Paul says, will be nothing less than the just wrath of God, the just judgment. God will judge those who have lived for His glory. His judgment will fit the fruit of their life. Or rather, the fruit of their life will be reflective of what his judgment is. And the same is true for those who will enter into his wrath, that the fruit that has come from their lives will prove that that judgment has been a just one. Let me put it theologically. Maybe this will help some of you. Justification always leads to sanctification. You see the connection? Those who are justified, those who truly are righteous in Christ will live lives that are increasingly like Christ, that are increasingly holy and pleasing to the Lord. Not perfect in this life, but justification leads to sanctification. Why? Because a justified person is united to Jesus Christ, and a a person who's united to Jesus Christ bears lasting fruit because Jesus is the vine and he bears fruit in the lives of those who are connected to him by faith. 
And I think pastorally at this point, there are two things that are very important to do. Because I suspect that some of you, as you hear and interact with a text like this that's pointing, again, not to works as a basis of salvation, but as uh, the evidence at the day of judgment, some of you don't take this seriously enough. And some of you take this seriously but in the wrong way, in a very introspective, self-contained way that can lead to despair. So I think it's important to do what someone has called comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's what Paul does here. To those, to those who are complacent spiritually, who, who really don't see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, beyond just saying that you think you need him. Paul is saying, do you see that those who, are, those who at the last day will be vindicated as the people of God are those who in this life live lives that are pleasing to him? Because justification leads to sanctification. And those who at the last day stand condemned before the throne of God are those who in this life have lived only for themselves. And either way, the judgment of God is just. There's evidence to support what he's declared. So some of you, if you're inclined to, to begin to think, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I've done enough good works, you see you're going in the wrong direction because what Paul is saying is that if you belong to Jesus Christ and your heart is to live for his glory and to please him and, and to bear fruit for his name, that's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. It's evidence that you are Christ's. It's those of you who may be sitting here disinterested, unconcerned, not even giving a second thought to it. And this text comes to you and it's intended to disturb you, to awaken you, to alert you that justification, if it's true, leads to sanctification. What's the basis of being right with God? It's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which becomes imputed to you as you trust in him. Period. But what is it that serves as evidence that I do belong to Christ? That I am justified? It's that there's fruit on the tree. That there's a life that is filling up more and more with with good works. Martin Luther very... um, very helpfully said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. Works, Luther says, is a busy little thing. A faith is a busy little thing. J. Gresham Machen said, the faith that Paul means when he speaks of justification by faith alone is a faith that works, a faith that's active, James, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament letter that bears his name, says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That is, so a profession of faith and a life that is full of self-seeking do not go together. The Westminster Confession of Faith, again, says, Faith is the, the only instrument of justification, but, you know what it says? But faith is never alone in the person who believes, but it's always accompanied by good works. It's always accompanied by the fruit. It's not dead faith, but it, but it works out in love. 
Let me make a couple of concluding comments because you see what Paul says here is that God's judgment is such that he, he, will, he will judge justly those who self-righteously condemn others. And he will offer a judgment at the last day that is consistent with who we really are. And so let me say, let me apply this in two ways. First, some of you may be living lives that are presumptuous. Some of you may be living lives that are marked by self, self-concern, self-advancement, self-exaltation. And God says in his word that you're in very real danger and that you ought not be deceived. But the other thing that, that Paul teaches throughout this letter is that God is full of love and mercy toward those who see their need and run to Jesus Christ. But what he says is if you continue to be hard and complacent and judgmental, seeing the sins of others but never seeing your own, the just judgment of God will come upon you. Maybe you don't care about this, which could even be evidence that you're already coming under the judgment of God. And so this text is given to wake you up and to drive you to Christ Jesus where there is righteousness for sinners. But I also want to speak encouragement and a challenge to you as believers in Jesus Christ this morning. And I want to encourage you by asking you to consider this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know this for sure. On that last day, you will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ wondering what his verdict will be. Do you understand that? No believer in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ wondering, does he love me or does he love me not? Will he accept me or will he reject me? You will not be wondering what his verdict is. Do you know how I know that? Because the resurrection, your bodily resurrection will precede the judgment. You know what that means? That means that as you, believer, stand in front of Christ the judge, you will already stand as those who have been publicly vindicated. You'll stand in your glorified body. You'll stand as those who have been made like him, seeing him as he is. And what verdict will you hear? Righteous. Righteous, the same verdict that you hear now as you believe in his name. So do not think, it would be a terrible misunderstanding to think, that this text leads you to some kind of uncertainty about your future. No believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ wondering what his verdict will be. But we will stand beholding his face and delighting to hear him say, Welcome, welcome. And so the challenge of this text to you, to us as God's people, is that in light of that, we need to remember that salvation is not only from sin, but to holiness. God saves us from our sin, but he saves us so that we might live for him. And Paul says this so clearly in Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God that no one should boast. Why? Because he's created, he's prepared good works for you to walk in. He's called you to walk in a new way. And so what this text is calling us to is to remember that new creatures are called to live new lives. 
Oh, Paul is going to show us in Romans that Jesus Christ is true to his word. He is the one who has said, come to me, and I will never turn away the one who comes to me in faith. We need to be sure that we're seeing the reality of our need, that we might see the brightness of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who gives righteousness by faith to the unrighteous. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word, which which takes us down and humbles us. And perhaps this is a very hard lesson for many of us, if not all of us. In fact, at some point, it's a hard lesson for every one of us. Because you have to humble us before you lift us up. So we find ourselves in this text sobered with the understanding that we all are on level ground before you, the just judge, and that there's no hope save in Christ. God, I pray that not one of us here would be presumptuous or cold or indifferent, that not one of us here would be self-reliant or self-exalting, but that you would bring every one of us here, every one, to the place where we can look up and see in his glory the Lord Jesus Christ who saves sinners. And may we delight in him. May we rejoice in him and boast in him. God, may we not be those who are self-righteous, but may we be those who boast in his righteousness.